Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, January 27th, 2016, the Corbyn's Trident and Jailed Turkish Academics edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham. Joined as usual by my beloved and well-regarded co-hosts, Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristalia? I'm doing very well, thank you, Adam. How are you doing today? I'm just about coping, Kristalia. Uh, and by Scott Lucas, a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm ready for enlightenment and mischief today. Well, you will get both things here. Hurrah. And if you don't, it certainly won't be for the want of trying. Our two topics this week. First, Britain's Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn manoeuvres his party towards opposition to renewing Britain's nuclear missiles. If he can get that policy around his hostile MPs, what about the trade unions whose members' jobs may depend upon the programme? Second, President Erdogan of Turkey, tireless in his pursuit of the award for this decade's sharpest turn towards authoritarianism in a European state, held the prospect of treason charges over hundreds of academics who signed a petition calling for an end to violence in the country's Kurdish region. We discuss the matter from a safe distance. Onward. Since being elected as leader of the Labour Party in September of last year, Jeremy Corbyn has coexisted uneasily with his parliamentary party, with whom he disagrees on, well, most things. Foreign policy especially has been a flashpoint. Remember the bizarre spectacle of the leader and his shadow foreign secretary arguing on opposite sides of the debate on whether to bomb ISIS in Syria. And no point has been flashier than the question of whether Britain should renew Trident, its submarine-launched nuclear weapons system. Corbyn has pedigree going back to the 1970s as a campaigner for unilateral nuclear disarmament. And since being elected, he signalled his desire that this should be party policy. He was unsuccessful in getting that through at the party conference last year, but hopes are rising for him that he'll have more luck in 2016 at a conference that'll be populated by a whole bunch of new members who've joined since his election. His recent shadow cabinet reshuffle also slotted in ally Emily Thornbury at Defence, placing her in charge of a review of Labour's policy on the issue. The issue doesn't only present a clash between Corbyn and his parliamentary party, however. Trident is also supported by Unite and the GMB, GMB, large affiliated trade unions who carry significant voting weight in the party and who foresee the loss of thousands of members' jobs in defence manufacturing in the shipyards where the new submarines would be built if it were cancelled. This led Corbyn last week to float the idea, which I think it's fair to say makes more sense inside the tent of Labour politics than outside of it, of building the submarines anyway, but not using them to bear nuclear warheads. Scott, um, I certainly know what I think of this, but what about you? Uh, I realise I don't think we've even talked about this before. Are you a three cheers for disarmament sort of a guy? Am I going to discover that about you right now? Um, what's, your, what's your take? I'm a three cheers for a rational and productive economic, political and cultural approach. And at the risk of alienating many of my colleagues who work on nuclear strategy, we're not just talking about the past year or a few years. We're talking about 60 years of a pursuit of the bomb, which has been economically damaging, which has distorted British foreign and military policy, and which has been corrosive of thoughtful politics. Why do I say that? I mean, I want to get beyond Corbyn's own, as it were, unhelpful diversion, which is we can create the containers, but not actually have the firepower in them. The British nuclear capability from the 1950s was never actually that significant as a deterrent or as a contributor to international security. If the Americans did not have a a nuclear weapon, an atomic bomb, a hydrogen bomb, perhaps there's a rationale. 
But in the late 50s, the main reason why Britain pursued this was to get prestige, supposedly, from being a nuclear power. A military is rather silly nuclear power. They have spent billions of dollars for this prestige, billions of dollars which beyond an immediate reward in some jobs, but which would have gotten more jobs had the money been used for that. Right, it's about 8,000 people, I think, give right. or take, and I can imagine one could employ 8,000 people in all sorts of ways. Well, they'd want to be employed in those other ways, different matter altogether, they're happy where they are, but if we want it's, to get it's not exactly a colossal number of yeah. jobs for the amount of money we're talking yeah. about. If we want to get academic, I mean, study after study has yeah, shown... a lot of academics for that. That, that investment in non-military infrastructure projects produces far more economic benefits, both immediately and through a multiplier, than investing in this type of military project. If you talk about Trident, you're talking about expenditure of, what, up to $200 billion over the life cycle of the program. And just simply where that $200 billion could be spent in Britain, whether you talk about health, education, transportation, stimulation of investment, whether you talk about money which could be spent on conventional defense forces, where you're talking about the need for things like peacekeeping, supportive civil projects, which yeah. actually is where the cutting edge of military intervention right, is. Right, it's because not, it's not uniformly super enthusiastically popular within military circles in all no. cases, right? The, 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 the British nuclear of, weapons establishment. No. Uh, a lot of very hawkish kind of responses from the military on this over the last kind of few months, have they not? Especially kind of military top brass were whether that's anonymously or not anonymously. Right, yeah, suddenly there's been people suggesting pretty much openly that Jeremy Corbyn's not fit to be to be Prime Minister because of some of the views he has on, on this subject. Um, and I have heard a rumour about the willingness to, um, to begin a coup on this subject. <laughs> when you say you've heard a rumour, <laughs> uh, what kind of circles do you move in? Do you take this to be a, a credible threat that someone thought you were the good intermediary for? Absolutely, or? absolutely. I am, the, I am the vessel for these kind of threats. If, if you want to let should... the Prime Minister know on the down low that, that he shouldn't mess with your military, <laughs> you, you're the other vehicle of choice. Let's move swiftly on from, from where I may or may not have heard that. Yeah. Um, and on to a division in the military between the younger kind of members of the military and the older kind of members of the military who are more traditionally conservative. So I wonder... Who's, who's more conservative, the older, older ones or the younger? You can uh, never so tell younger, these days. Younger tends to vote Labour, apparently. This is, uh, this is based on uh, extensive research that I have not done. But I did not know that. I didn't think any part of the country uh, qualified as a name fitting in that apparently category anymore. Apparently they vote more Labour. So if anyone listening uh, can confirm or deny that, I would be grateful. Uh, also confirm or deny the, the coup thing, but, you know, I keep my sources close to my chest. I'm not sure I want to be in direct contact with the kind of people <laughs> who threaten coups. But anyway, the point is, I wonder whether it's also going to, aside from kind of cage-rattling among military, pro, um, provoke some kind of internal debate within the military. Hmm. I th think it's interesting about the dynamics that we're probably talking about here. There's a public line that military will take which, of course, is you never publicly give up a program, right? Mm -hmm. You don't give it up because you lose influence if you lose, basically give up where basically part of your budget. Yeah. It's you, also a credible threat. Yeah. I mean, 
Well, if you have a if you have a prime minister who says, okay, you're going to dismantle it, but also if you have a prime minister who says, I'm never going to use it, right, right. which was one of the reasons why they originally set a collision course with Corbyn, the military, this is yeah. because he made that public statement yeah. that yeah. he was basically short circuiting any debate in either the country or his party on whether or not they should have these weapons, because he was saying, if I'm in charge, I will never use them, and that's functionally the yeah. same thing as not having them. But this is where you get to public versus private. Because this is a case of the emperor's new clothes. I mean, there is, is almost no situation in terms of practical international politics, international conflict, where a British nuclear weapon such as Trident is going to be central in terms of what we're talking about here. If you talk about the conflicts that we're dealing with right now, if you talk about the Middle East, the idea that a nuclear weapon would have been used in 2003 to take out Saddam Hussein, no. The idea that it would be used in the Syrian conflict, the idea that it would be used in North Africa, that it would be used against the Islamic State, against Al-Qaeda, mm. right? The, over the Ukraine that you would use a nuclear weapon. We're talking about a functional weapon which was designed for the fact that if you went to what was called a superpower conflict or a conflict of the big powers, then somehow Britain would play a role if the U.S. and the Soviets got into it. Now... Trident, if it was used in that scenario, would merely contribute to destruction that is going to occur anyway. The other option we might talk about is what if a rogue state, North Korea, decides it wants to set off a nuclear weapon, etc. Look, that is going to turn much more upon an American response, a Chinese response, other states in the region, than it is about the British suddenly putting a submarine off the coast of North Korea and deciding to, to let Kim Jong-un uh, Jong have one yeah. in retaliation. So I think, I would hope that privately, the military and having this debate realize there's a division here between what is publicly being upheld as essential mm. and privately what in fact is not essential and in fact is actually detrimental in terms of military posture. Especially when you think about, I mean, the military has got to be thinking about this, this climate that's kind of split between austerity and ISIS, right? So we're going to be continuing to fight wars in various places. Okay the military is going to be continuously underfunded. Mm -hmm. And there are real implications of that. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the sighs are just like pouring out of me here. It, it, it's because, if I can lower this to the level of domestic British politics uh, and perhaps even intra-Labour Party politics for a moment, it just, it's, it's very frustrating for me that at this moment in British life, the leader of the Labour Party has chosen to make this such a big issue. Because, uh, you know, during the week when, when all this came out, Jeremy Corbyn was giving a, a, a major uh, address where he was talking about he would like to pursue policies like uh, perhaps limiting companies' ability to pay dividends unless they paid the living wage, yeah. uh, tying the upper-level salaries within companies to uh, the middle or lower-level salaries, addressing questions of economic inequality, on which, um, you know, however high the Conservatives may be riding for a variety of reasons, you know, there are some serious concerns about economic inequality and fairness in British society on which they're very vulnerable. And when I saw someone like Jeremy Corbyn take over the leadership of the party, whatever his other failings, I thought, well, at least we're not going to get austerity light again as the Labour agenda. They're going to be a good, solid run by a left-of-centre British opposition against some of these domestic issues. And, you know, weird as it sounds for a foreign policy expert to lament the idea that a party is getting diverted needlessly into foreign policy, um, you know, nuclear weapons especially seems like such a 
unhelpful ditch to decide to to, to die in on, mm. on Jeremy Corbyn's part. Um, you know, I'm not crazy about nuclear weapons. They seem to cost a lot of money. They don't seem to be particularly useful. If they could, if everyone could just show their hands and say, "Should we get rid of these?" Yeah, totally. I would say, "Great, let's let let's do that." But it doesn't seem like that is possible. It seems like what's going to happen is that there will be a long, drawn out, brutal fight within the Labour Party, between the leader and his MPs, between um, the uh, leader and those MPs who support him and the trade unions, between should he take the whole party with him then and the, them and the public, because the Conservatives are so successful in selling this message yeah. that there is something dangerous or irresponsible about removing Britain's deterrent, when on the actual substance of the issue, it just doesn't... I know it sounds weird to sort of say nuclear weapons, meh, but... It doesn't seem all that important to me to get rid of British nuclear weapons um, because, you know, do those who say we, we, we desperately need them uh, to stave off, I don't know what, like Russian dominance or something convince me? No, absolutely not. I just don't see any circumstances under which we would use these things. I don't see how useful they, that they could realistically be interpreted to be. But then by the same token, if I don't see, if I see the, you know, the, the only threat that British nuclear weapons pose being the decision of the British government to use them, and I just don't think brass tacks, if it came down to it, I can see any circumstances under which they, they would use them, then it doesn't matter that much to me whether or not they're, whether they're there or not. And the only rationale for going through the horrific ideological and political lifting exercise and slog of abolishing nuclear weapons as a, as, as a Labour government or a Labour would-be government, would be if you think this is going to make some major influential mark on the international disarmament movement, that somehow Britain's decision contributes to that. And I just don't believe that for a moment. The idea that the United States or Russia or anybody else is waiting on Britain's decision in this regard to decide whether or not they want to keep their nuclear weapons just doesn't, uh, doesn't make the slightest bit of sense to me. So... As a, as a non-fan of nuclear weapons, I just think, good God, Jeremy Corbyn, at a time when the Labour Party has so much hay to be made politically about things the government are unpopular on to do with economic policy and inequality, to pick an issue where you have trade unions and Labour MPs and so much of the general public who are going to never buy for a minute what you're selling um, just because it's a pet issue you've had since the 70s, I, I despair, I absolutely do. Uh, I just don't believe this this issue matters remotely enough to justify making it this kind of divisive priority. I disagree. <laughs> you won't be the only one, I dare say, Scott. Well, I'm, I'm probably riding a, riding an unusual train on the who cares no, I, about nuclear weapons. What you say is a pragmatist. It, 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 I can see the absolute line of thought, but I think there's there's a couple things. I mean, the immediate preliminary point is I don't. I I think this was sort of forced upon Corbyn, with respect. I think you've got a group of of members of the shadow cabinet, you've got a large group of MPs who never wanted him to become leader, and they are trying to force his hand by saying, we're going to commit to keeping Trident. You're not going to reverse that, mm. and trying to back him down. And I think we also faced the prospect that the government was going to put forth a motion which was going to restate that commitment to try right. to... So they know where the divide is within the Labour Party. Yeah, they were trying to exploit but, but, that. But, I mean, he's not a half-hearted participant in this. You know, he, he really oh. believes in this issue. He's going to go to conference. I mean, they yep. had a bit of a run at it last time. He's really going to go to conference to try and get party policy changed. Yep. You know, he's, he's been selecting no. uh, his own side in terms of the internal defence review to match up against those who would like to steer at the yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and tactically, I agree with I think what I hope Corbyn will do now, and I think he... Again, it's a very uphill PR battle 
because so much has been invested for decades in this myth that the nuclear deterrent is essential, is that he connects it up and says, look, I'm saying this not as an isolated issue about nuclear I'm talking about the economic cost of if we pursue this road, and you connect it up, therefore, to the issues that you raise, which is mm-hmm. the need for a more effective expenditure of government funds, that you connect it up to the question of what does Britain mean in terms of its military posture now. And so you actually go back to the military and say, look, the type of wars you're fighting, you actually need more frontline aircraft to deal with conventional threats as opposed mm-hmm. to nuclear threats. How are we going to do that? So that type of joined up thinking, and, it, and the problem is he didn't want to prejudice the review that was going to come out, so he didn't come out with that line, which is where you should come at. But the broader point I want to make to you this is, is, uh, is that, look, when I first came to this country in the early 80s, labor caused itself a lot of damage by actually being on the right side of an issue, but mishandling it. And that was that they were calling for unilateral disarmament in the early 1980s under Michael Foote. And Thatcher just hammered them as the cynical, nasty politician that she is. And so I see what you're saying, that we could have a reduction. But at some point, I think you've got to draw the line. You have got to draw the line and mark sense, and at least if it doesn't succeed now, you at least draw it for maybe five, ten years from now, which is you look at the Scandinavian countries, they don't rise and fall on having a nuclear deterrent. Mm-hmm. You look at a number of countries in Europe, in Asia, they do not fall on rising a nuclear deterrent. You look at countries which are doing economically better than we are, and part of it is because they're spending money where it matters. Not on this, to be honest with you, this frivolous, expensive, macho posturing of a weapon system that is unlikely to be ever used, and if it is going to be used, would in fact be contributing to destruction rather than any type of constructive response. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I think you go to the I think you go to bat on this one for one other reason, which is practical. It's one year into the life cycle of this government. Three years from now, everybody says, election coming up, election coming up. If we go to the five-year cycle, do it now. Do it early in the cycle. Get the debate done, and let's see what happens. No, I'm not sure. I think that um, on, the, on the tactical issue, I think that conservatives have the upper hand at the public level. So, and especially, especially if we look at reports that are coming out now about public support for this lament about the empire stuff. So if you if you join up this myth about the kind of deconstruction of Britain's hegemony or supremacy or however you want to say it mm-hmm. in the kind of global context with this this kind of melancholy for a greater past, yeah. I don't know that it's a conducive public atmosphere for the Labour Party to, to put this issue to bed. That is not to say that I don't agree. I agree wholeheartedly yeah. with you. But yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, I think it it. it seems like a waste of money. That money might be better spent. Um, it seems like the military rationale for it is highly questionable, has always been highly questionable, is probably as questionable today as, as it has ever been. But, but I would agree with, with, with Cristala. Everything that I think I know about uh, the public uh, and about the arguments the Conservatives will make and about how the public responds to those arguments uh, tells me that it would be completely beyond the capacity even of a united Labour Party behind this policy to win on that issue. At best, it's a losing issue you could smuggle in with a whole bunch of other issues. Um, at worst, it's one that drags you down. And I don't think, even if you limited the marketplace that you're pitching this idea to to Labour voters, you would have a very good chance yeah. of getting most of them on your side. So I think you're right. Those who have made this a 
um, a point of priority if they are coming at Jeremy Corbyn from the outside, probably do know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. They know that he has this deep and abiding commitment on a very sincere and moral level to this issue that he can't be seen to give up because he got elected as a man who believes in things and sticks to what he, what he believes in. But they can see very clearly that this is an issue that's a loser with the public, um, that is probably going to be um, a loser even with his own party. And at the end of focusing on which... Uh, he will be weaker and the party will be weaker and at the same time all of these other lines of attack on which the party could be united will have gone uh, at least for some portions of time drowned out and unheard because this uh, from my point of view quixotic priority this thing that sure it'd be nice to save the money and sure it's useless but if you you know in the grand scheme of things the money you save is not enough to justify that level of intramural divisive destructive argument and in strategic terms unless you believe the abolition of british nuclear weapons makes a difference to international disarmament and avoiding you know the meltdown of the world then it's not important enough on those grounds either so i just don't think it's important enough to knowingly set yourself on a course to division and, and, and disaster. I, I do wonder, though, before we close, whether, whether Scott's point about um, a better joined-up policy is, is, is an important one here, because it does strike me that it could give the Labour Party, if it can have some internal coherence, a kind of get-out-of-jail-free, not quite free, but <laughs> with get-out-of-jail at some point, dig your way out of jail. Get out ever of yeah, jail. Because if yes... If you could nice. say, if you could say... I feel say, like there may be a long prison sentence that all who are involved in Labour <laughs> no, are serving right hope, now. Hope, hope dies last. Um, <laughs> if you can say, listen, this is our platform, if you can get to that point, yeah. and then say, however, you know, what we would suggest if we were, if we were elected to government yeah. would be the redirecting of those funds into X, Y, Z to strengthen military capacity, which is problematic from a Labour perspective, some parts of Labour anyway, mm. but yeah. I do think there's, 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 there are legs in that. Final volley. Uh, there have been other cases where your pragmatic argument could be applied, which is you could have said that it, it wasn't the right time politically to pursue civil rights initiatives because of public opinion in the states, long-held public opinions in the states in the 50s and in the 60s. You probably could have said in Ireland that it was not the right time to pursue questions of same-sex rights because of long-held beliefs in Irish culture. You could say in America that it's not going to be the right time, it'll never be the right time to pursue a meaningful system of gun control because of long-held beliefs in American culture. You can say that. If not, if not now, when? You know, if, 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 if not now, five years from now, ten years from now, when there's more money wasted, when there are more myths entrenched, and when we go down a road which I think we all agree upon is not productive, but we don't see the immediate value of drawing a line and trying to at least say to people, maybe at some point you need to reconsider. Well, I admire your principle and your optimism as always, Scott. I'm not sure that I always share it. <laughs> and this is, a, this, is one of those, uh, this is one of those times. But let's draw to a close here and uh, no doubt... Mr. Corbyn has been writing it all down and taking it very seriously as he enters into his policy review uh, over the next few weeks. Onward.
On January 15th, 33 scholars were arrested in Turkey. Their crime, having signed a petition calling for an end to violence between state forces and Kurdish separatists in the southeast of the country. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, long-time friend of this program, I'm sure we would all agree, gotten plenty of coverage before and all of it favourable, uh, called them and hundreds of other academics who had signed the petition traitors and suggested that their university employers should discipline them Everyone who benefits from this state but is now an enemy of the state must be punished without further delay, Darth Vader commented. No, sorry, I mean, I mean President Erdogan commented. Um, as a result, the spectre of both firing and prosecution now hangs over all involved. These moves led to declarations of condemnation and solidarity from many academics and academic associations abroad, including the European University Association. To give this the uh, standard context that will now be grimly familiar to regular listeners of this podcast, Turkey has been marching towards authoritarianism. Uh, uh, marching? I don't know. Slouching? Creeping? It's been doing something to get it towards ever closer authoritarianism for some years under Erdogan's rule, escalating military tensions with a number of countries in its neighbourhood, combining with a harsh crackdown on political freedom and civil liberties at home. So, Kristala, you're our... Our go-to usually for, for for the Turkish issues. I suppose at this point we should just be grateful that he didn't just have them all shot um, yeah. or something. Um, that he that he limited himself to threats of treason charges and and, and other such overblown talk. I mean, are we now at the point with Turkey, whereas at least one UK-based uh, uh, Turkish Kurdish expert, who I don't imagine is going home anytime soon, uh, has said this is this is an autocratic country. Uh, when you get to the point where this sort of rhetoric and these sorts of legal tools are being used against against scholars who sign petitions. So um, last time we convened, my number of the week was the explosion in, in Istanbul. And I think I ended by saying something like, I wonder if there'll be um, a subsequent crackdown by Erdogan um, on em enemies of the state. Um, and he must, as though he had heard yes, you. Yes, prescient I am not, because it's too all too common a pattern. Um, so, yes, I agree with your, your, your scholar. Um, and I think there are two perspectives that are important here. One is the domestic context, the Turkish domestic context, which is really important. And the other is the international. And I think on the domestic, I mean, what's happening here is that, that this is part of a constant strategy, continuous longer-term strategy that Erdogan specifically in his government, members of his government, have pursued. And what they're doing is outcasting and bullying people who are actually pretty reasonable. Um, and providing a really, and, and catering to a very deep polarisation. So at the public level, they're trying to raise fear among the broader electorate, especially around Daesh or ISIL, right? So these, and, and, his, and his comments about the Turkish academics or the people who sympathise with the struggles in the southeast speak specifically to you guys are weakening the state, you know, you're, they're, they're, they're traitors for a reason and it's treason for a reason. Mm. Um, and he loves it, the state. It, yes. Say what you like about the man, he's uh, committed to that. Je suis l'état. <laughs> um, so, so, yes. Um, so I think that... He is fear-mongering again. It comes very clearly off the back of, of not only the, um, the statements in support um, of the southeast, but also off the back of, a, of an ISIS attack um, in Istanbul, in the, heart of, in the heart of cosmopolitan Turkey. So, so you know, there's a strategy here. Um, and, and it's an effort, I think, especially to suppress opposition against the whole Tayyip propaganda machine, right? So let's be very clear. 
he's whipping up an already activated us versus them mentality that exists in Turkey and that is deepening in Turkey and this is very dangerous. And them is not just uh, foreigners or minority groups, them is basically anybody who isn't sufficiently enthusiastic and full-throated in their support for him and everything he stands for, right? Absolutely, which, which, which is getting more and more conservative by the day, right? And then if we move on to the international front, there's been a lot of condemnation, as you mentioned, and among kind of um, democratic international community, including and especially led by scholars, but also the US, Obama came out and said something about it. Um, the EU has, has made some statements. But at the end of the day, I don't think that um, the EU or the US are going to put any pressure, any real pressure on Turkey to stop these attacks. Um, and I think that it's for reasons of, of broader US and EU policy. And from the US perspective, they need Turkey's support to fight Daesh, ISIL. Um, and Brussels, I think, really is focusing on um, that stopping that flow of refugees into the EU. And for that, they also need Turkey. So I think that on the international stage, whatever levers that might ha might exist to kind of curbing this autocratic rise um, mm -hmm. um, uh, don't look great. Um, I don't know that there's a tremendous amount of willingness at the leadership level, and I think internally there's a there's a deepening and really troubling week by week polarization. And this is probably the fourth or fifth time that that we've talked about Turkey, and I've said that. Yeah, but, and you've been right every time, because every time we hear about it, it seems to get worse. I mean, th this one seems, you know, uh, especially bad to me, not so much because what he's doing to anybody in particular is the worst thing he's ever done to people. I very much doubt that's yeah. true. It's, it's the sheer, it's that weird combination of brutality and self-regard and brittleness yeah. that, that, that it seems to speak to. Like, of all the sort of, commonplace, common or garden, not terribly effectual um, things that happen in a society. A bunch of university academics signing a petition that says, can we all please just get along? Can we have less of this? I mean, what more benign, mundane, not particularly um, likely to shake the, the foundations of the state kind of activity could you, could you ask to see, really? Happens hundreds of times a year all over the world on a variety of issues. So the idea that that something as small as that provokes someone who is this inflated strongman who sees himself as the figure around which the Turkish state revolves these days feels the need to respond to that with this sort of hysterical, supervillainish talk. Um, you know, as though... Uh, these were a bunch of people who'd been caught with secrets of state in a knapsack on their way, uh, you know, into a foreign embassy or something. And um, the idea that the integrity and security and safety of the state is being undermined, not even by cooperation in any operational sense with the state's enemies, but just by um, banal pleas for international peace of a sort that that barely even qualifies as dissent in the in the strongest sense, just speaks so ill of, well, I mean, of him, but also of the atmosphere that increasingly must be building in Turkey, that it is exactly that kind of 
overblown enemies are everywhere um, paranoid talk that whether because it's sincerely believed or because it's uh, you know seen as an appropriate tactic or rhetoric to get him where he wants to be it's just so 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 damaging and like you know whenever we get into these you know we, we get nowhere near but whenever we get in our own political spaces in the United States or, or, or the UK or wherever it may be um, spaces where we start to to talk in that way about verbal expressions of concern about whether the state is overreaching or going too far or whether wars are a good idea. You know, I'm always, it always reconfirms me and, you know, the absolutely essential quality of dissent and the tolerance of dissent and keeping even people who have opinions that you think are, you know, not very helpful opinions from the point of view of national security strategy, that the tolerating that because you know that in the long run, it's not going to bring the state to its knees, and if anything, it contributes more good than, than, than harm by a long way, that this is an essential part of, I think I'm going to go all in and say it, a civilized society, uh, in, in the sense that you know, that, that term still, still means something. And it, um, seeing that fall apart in a country that relatively recently seemed to be going in the opposite direction is just so dispiriting. You know, we've seen it before, but that makes it sadder, I think, in a way, to see a country that so recently could have been evaluated as going entirely the other way. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking watching it for the people watching it inside Turkey as well as terrifying. And it's heartbreaking watching it from the outside. Yeah. I mean, I fully agree. I agree that you're looking at a man, I guess we have to call him the president, whose ego has expanded so much that he could threaten punishment of people who on social media spread a photograph comparing him to uh, Gollum. Or was it Smeagol? This, this turned out to be the debate, whether uh, legally speaking, whether they'd slandered him, depended on which one it was. Yeah, it was so I heard, anyway. Yeah. This, I, yeah. I'm passing on my own rumours from, from the Kumongas then. But to say, anyway, comparing him to a Lord of the Rings character in an unflattering light could lead to possible imprisonment. We are talking about mad journalists uh, who are being imprisoned. Turkey is the largest jailer of journalists in the world, has been for years. Recently, and imprisoned another editor and a bureau chief for daring to say that Turkey had sent arms to the Syria's rebels. We're talking about the clampdown civil society, fully agree with you. Importantly, we're talking about what is now a state of siege of Kurdish communities yeah. in much of eastern and southeastern Turkey, which has led to a number of deaths, which has led to more detentions, which has led to economic deprivation, which is almost uncovered because it's hard to hear about it. Because it's a de facto state of martial law. All of this, and so let's put that there. But to anticipate what's going to happen, I think context is crucial. And I think context is crucial here is, is Syria. Um, we're two and a half years removed from Gezi Park where you had the mass demonstrations against Erdogan and his authoritarian rule. We're two and a half years further into the Syrian crisis, and here's what we're looking at. We're looking at a de facto Kurdish autonomous state in northern Syria. I mean, that's what we're looking at. And that Kurdish state, one of the leading and possibly the leading force in it will be the Turkish Kurdish insurgency, PKK they will effectively be running that state across the Turkish border. The PKK is fighting the Turkish government because the ceasefire broke down last July following Islamic State attack. So while the Islamic State is disruptive, is causing all sorts of complications, you're talking about Turkey facing a Kurdish insurgency and a Syrian Kurdish state 
And here's the paradox, which now is supported by the U.S. The U.S. is working with Syrians Kurds. They're working with the PKK, even though they officially declare it a terrorist organization, and that is a huge shift. So for Erdogan, he's going to portray this as an existential threat. Now, we can talk about whether or not that is true, but if he can make Turks believe it, then he succeeds, which is one of the reasons why they won a majority in November in the elections. In other words, this is a crisis state. Syria, of course, is a crisis state in civil war. Egypt is a crisis state right now. Iran has been a crisis state since 1980, and we're seeing the same thing in Turkey. Lesson, you deal with Syria, you deal with Syria, and then you've got a way out because you deal with the refugee issue, you deal with the issue which is causing the instability, including the Islamic State, and then you have space to put pressure on Erdogan. You don't deal with Syria, you got nothing. Right. So, I mean, yeah, so we, we can say that Turkish domestic politics is yet another casualty on the long list from the hellish morass that is, that is Syria, which in turn one can argue is a knock-on from the, the, the terrible mess that Iraq uh, became and uh, which is such a it's starting to feel like you know I think we all knew that invasion in Iraq was a bad idea probably some time ago and important but it but it um, producer Connor is laughing at the understatement of my, uh, my my choice of phrasing there it was a bad idea right you know about 640 <laughs> we're, leaning, we're leaning against um, uh, but it, it's just starting to seem like that decision and the events that followed are going to reverberate in so many ways for so many decades. You know, the, uh, the collapse of order in Iraq, which in turn has knackered Syria several years down the line, and now all of these um, places around that are in ways that could never have been expected or predicted. So it's not anybody's particular individual fault in the specific anymore, but it's a real moral morality play about the scale of unintended consequences mm. when you make these sort of bold and brash decisions based upon a sweeping under-informed prediction about how things are going to go oh we'll we'll topple this government we'll build a model democracy and then everybody in its environment will be so jealous of how great things are there that they'll all start um uh, replicating it. See, well, you know, how's that working out? Uh, because whatever we can say this region is doing at the moment, um, uh, moving in lockstep towards uh, ever more ideal types of liberalism and democracy, that is not the case. In fact, you know, looking at the Turkish situation at the moment, it, it's, it's like, it has me in mind of these classic textbooks, uh, you know, uh, textbook portrayals from Enlightenment literature about, you know, how the the symbiotic relationship between perceptions of outside threat and uh, domestic dissidents get uh, joined up together by individuals who want uh, uh, a mechanism through which to secure themselves in escalatingly tyrannous authority. It's, it's a playbook of sorts, and it's uh, playing out in particularly ugly form here, but very classically so. Uh. Anyway, that, that was my chance to get a dig in at Iraq again, well, even in 2016, but, and with reference to an unrelated country, supposedly. But before handing it over, before handing it over to Kristala to give us one more shot for civil society, I hope to persistence by adding Saudi Arabia to the list of crisis states. What I would probably say is, this may be worse than what happened in 2003 in Iraq, believe it or not, because we had the opportunity to learn from Iraq. Wait, what you mean? Syria might be the Syria mess may be worse, and I and I'm going to put it explain. We had the opportunity to learn from Iraq in 2003 in terms of intervening on the basis of a lie 
and completely destroying it. We had the opportunity to learn from it. What we are moving towards in Syria in 2016, I can understand recognizing Kurdish autonomy, despite the fact the PKK complicates it. You're probably moving towards the U.S., I think reluctantly European powers, working with Russia to rationalize the continued rule of President Assad, despite the fact that he is at the head of a regime that has murdered hundreds of thousands of its civilians and displaced millions. And you have no space, morally or politically, to put pressure on Erdogan or anyone else if you wind up doing that. Absolutely no credibility. And that's what we're on the verge of doing. Yeah. If you can decide that he's an ally of convenience, well, yeah, who isn't? Oh, um, Cristala, take us home. Scott has given me um, an opening to some optimism. And and I'm not tremendously optimistic. Um, what I do want to say is, yes, you're right. What, what you've pointed out, Scott, is that civil society continues to engage and reform um, and rethink about these problems and is tremendously powerful, and I use that word so carefully, um, when it comes to social engagements and networking um, and building momentum across multiple platforms. But I just don't see, I just think their hands are tied. I really do. Well, we'll no doubt be returning to this one many times in future. And something tells me it won't be uh, because there are increasingly hopeful trends in the politics of Turkey. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview. And please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. And you can also, and this is the one that I would most encourage you to do, uh, come and like our show page on Facebook, which is www.facebook.com forward slash poll worldview to see article links post your own comments etc my co-hosts are Kristala Yakinthu where can they find you if they want to Kristala they can find me on twitter at at Yakinthu y-a-k-i-n-t-h-o-u excellently enunciated as always and Scott what's your social media presence like Uh, I work on EA Worldview creating mischief each and every day in coverage of news and analysis from around the world I am on twitter at scottlucas underscore ea And let me add a shout-out this week for a new initiative at Birmingham, which includes all of us, called the Political Settlements Research Group, PSRG, which you can find on Twitter as well, where we're going to try to find some type of resolutions to the conflicts that uh, we talk about every week on Political Worldview. Good luck with that. I'm uh, Adam Quinn. You can find me at Adam Quinn. I'm 161 on Facebook. I'm also at Adam James Quinn. Uh, on Twitter if you prefer that although I use Facebook a lot more so I'd recommend you try and find me there our producer is Connor McKenna and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England we'll be back again in a couple of weeks we hope you will be too bye bye bye